Welcome to This is Type 1, real-life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for 23 years. By day, I'm a process analyst in the power industry, and by night, I'm an author, blogger, and virtual assistant. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had type 1 for 7 years. I love hiking and painting, and I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my future and learn everything I can about it. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 14 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Jesse is still out, so it's another solo episode today. I'm talking about how to manage long-term control. But first, I've got a win of the week and a diabetes hack for y'all. So on my trip last week to the East Coast, I had the chance to grab dinner with two cousins in the area. Even though I used my eight-dinner basal profile, which gives me a higher basal rate over the evening, and I bolused for the food I ate, my blood sugar still climbed into the mid-200s. At one point, I think I had between about five and seven units of active insulin before I went to sleep around 11 p.m., and that slowly brought me back down. But I still consider it a fail because I obviously didn't plan in advance well enough to avoid that high. My hack this week is related to some self-defense classes I'm taking. So I'm trying out a Brazilian jiu-jitsu studio right now, and one of my concerns was that my Dexcom G6 sensor might get pulled off during a grapple. So I got some rock tape off Amazon, and I'm using that over my sensor in addition to the grip grips to help keep it secure. And it's also a good idea to tell my sparring partner that I've got a medical device on so she doesn't or he doesn't grab it off. Going to jiu-jitsu is kind of the first time in years that I've actually used those protective infusion site caps that Jesse talked about in episode four. All right, let's dive in. Something to remember is that every diabetic's care is individual and will probably look a lot different from another diabetic's. I know there are some diabetics who do really well on higher carb diets some who do better with multiple daily injections rather than an insulin pump, and diabetics whose alert dogs are an integral part of their long-term care. Remember, this isn't medical advice. This is me talking from 24 years of experience figuring out what works for me. It's my hope that you can use my experience to help you learn how to better control your own diabetes. Something I love saying is that I want you to take what works and leave the rest. That all being said, there are several important factors to look at when it comes to the metrics of long-term control. And these include your A1C, total daily dose of insulin, time and range, avoiding complications, how often you exercise, and what you eat. Some of the softer factors include your mindset, your mental health, and your relationships with yourself, your family, friends, coworkers, and caregivers. Let's walk through each of these to see how they fit into long-term care plans. First up is your A1C. A1C is the shortened way of talking about the hemoglobin A1C test. The easiest way to explain the A1C test is that it's a measure of average blood sugar over the last six to eight weeks, but if you're going to your doctor regularly, it's tested every three months. It's presented as a percentage, and each percentage is roughly equivalent to an average blood sugar number in milligrams of glucose per deciliter of blood, which is abbreviated as MGDL, or millimoles of glucose per liter of blood, abbreviated as MMOL slash L. And the millimoles reading is more common in the European countries. The Joslin Diabetes Center actually has a really handy table of converting millimoles to MGDL, and the American Diabetes Association has an A1C calculator, and we'll link to both of those in the show notes. But just to kind of give a few examples of the conversion factor, a perfect non-diabetic blood sugar is about 83, 
MGDL, and that is around a 4.5% A1C. 5.7% is about 117, 6% is about 126, 7% is around 154. The highest A1C I ever had was 10% in November of 2007. That's an average blood sugar of 240 MGDL. And from the logs I have of my childhood A1Cs, I never dropped below 7.2%, which is about an average of 160. A non-diabetic A1C is 5.7% or lower. And growing up, my doctors and educators told me that I should aim for less than 7%. My A1C was in the 8% range all the way through 2015. And the first time I saw it drop into the 6% range was after I started eating low carb in 2016. My A1C now is 5.8%, one-tenth of a percentage point away from normal. And it's interesting to me that the difference between normal and not normal is a deviation of just 3 MGDL, from 120 to 117. My A1C has been 5.9% or lower for the last year and a few months. And this is such a huge milestone for me considering my unstable, really high A1Cs of the past. For long-term control, it's important to have an A1C goal in the normal range for a non-diabetic, which is less than or equal to 5.7%. Next up is your total daily dose of insulin. For those of you eating a higher carb diet, your total daily dose is naturally going to be a lot higher. There's a calculation I learned from my endocrinologist that tells you if you're using too much insulin. So you take your weight in pounds and divide by four. That number is an indicator of a total daily dose of insulin that would maintain your weight. It's not an exact science, and you probably shouldn't base all your calculations and medical decisions on that number, but it's a useful metric for knowing if you're using too much insulin, which is a driver of weight gain. If your total daily dose is higher than the number that that calculation spits out, you're probably gaining weight. And if it's lower, you're likely maintaining or losing. Before I switched to low carb, my total daily dose was the maintenance number for someone over 300 pounds. My total daily dose right now is around 33 units, which is the maintenance number for about 132 pounds. Now, actually reaching that weight is a lot harder than just keeping my daily dose at 33 units. There's a lot more that goes into it than just that. We talked about losing weight as type 1 diabetics in episode 10. A metric that's tied to the total daily dose is the split between how much of your insulin comes from your basal rate or your long-acting insulin versus your boluses or your short-acting injections for meals and high corrections. When I was growing up, my doctor told me that this split should be about 50-50. In reality, my split back then was closer to 30-70, meaning 30% of my insulin came from my basal rate and the other 70% came from boluses. Nowadays, my split is around 83-17. Most of my insulin comes from my basal rate. And this is a natural result from switching to a low-carb lifestyle. My goal for long-term control is to keep my total daily dose low and my split more tipped towards basal insulin. The next metric is time in range. So for those of us on CGMs or continuous glucose monitors, we have to set high and low alert lines. You can do that with some glucose meters too, or you can just track your trends manually with a logbook. But CGM software calculates your time in range. In episode 13, I mentioned how the time in range measurement is now becoming a more reliable indicator of long-term control over the A1C because you can have a lot of lows averaging out a lot of highs to give you a lower A1C, but those swings are super damaging to the body. Years ago, my, my range was between 90 and 180, which is a 90-point window. That meant I pretty much didn't give corrections for lows until I dropped below 90, and I didn't correct for highs until I rose above 180. Over the last three years, which is coincidentally the same amount of time I've been on low-carb, I've tightened my range so that it's now between 83 and 139. That's just a 56-point window. So as of my last data download from my pump, my time and range over the past two months is about 73%, with 24% being above range and around 3 being below range. 
I used to have a lot more low excursions before I got the basal IQ update to my T-Slim. Basal IQ is an algorithm that basically stops insulin delivery if the math predicts a blood sugar below 80 in the next 30 minutes. I am so looking forward to control IQ, which is the update that would give insulin for higher blood sugar predictions. Understanding time and range and aiming for a majority of your blood sugars to be in range is essential for long-term control. And all of this brings us to avoiding complications. One of the most annoying things for type 1 diabetics is hearing stories from well-meaning but oblivious people about their grandma or another distant relative who had diabetes but needed a leg amputated or they lost their vision or they got kidney disease or they're suffering from all of these complications of diabetes. And while these complications are serious and should not be taken lightly, it's also not really helpful for diabetics to listen to those stories. When I hear them, all I'm hearing is that their relatives did not take care of themselves and are suffering the consequences. As type 1 diabetics, it's our responsibility to understand the complications, the risks, and what we can do to avoid them. One of the best ways to stay on top of this is by regularly going to your doctors. All of them. It's especially important for diabetics to regularly see their eye doctors and dentists, on top of going to the endocrinologist every three months. My eye doctor checks for signs of diabetic retinopathy and glaucoma. It's important to keep my A1C low because higher blood sugars lead to long-term complications, including vision loss. Since I enjoy using my eyeballs, it's a priority for me to stay on top of my blood sugars and regularly see my eye doctor. My dentist checks to make sure I'm not developing gum disease, which is nice because, you know, I like having a healthy mouth. When I was a kid, my mom would get pretty upset whenever I went outside without shoes on. Her fear was that I'd get a cut or something on my foot and not feel it. And that's a legitimate concern for diabetics with nerve damage. But as a kid, I could feel my feet just fine. And I still can. My endocrinologist will still test the feeling in my feet at every visit, just to make sure. Here's an abbreviated list of some of the complications we need to be aware of. Kidney disease, heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, nerve disease or neuropathy, foot problems, eye disease or retinopathy, skin infections, and gum disease. And the easiest way to lower the odds of experiencing one or more of these complications long-term is controlling your blood sugar. Another way to help with that long-term control is exercise. There's no doubt that exercise helps keep blood sugars lower. Exercise uses energy, and that energy will often come from consumed carbohydrates. If you're eating low-carb or keto, that energy comes from fat stores. But we still need to watch out for low blood sugars because exercise also stimulates insulin absorption. Different kinds of exercise affect me in different ways. A walk around the park will prompt my blood sugar to start going down, but weightlifting or other anaerobic exercises will keep me steady or raise my blood sugar. During my first trial session of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I unhooked my pump with my blood sugar at 150 with no active insulin, and by the time the hour ended, my number was 220 and climbing. Before the second session, my blood sugar was about 104 and looked like it was going to go back down, so I had one too many rolls of Smarties, and I went up to about 170. I did give a correction in the middle of the class, so that helped stop the increase a little bit. So all of this tells me that I need to go into the hour with my blood sugar stable around maybe 120 with maybe a little bit of active insulin. Either way, I need to keep a close eye on my blood sugars before, during, and after exercise. Diabetics who regularly exercise, no matter what kind of exercise it is, will naturally use less insulin. And it's ideal to exercise in some form every day, but regular longer workouts also help with long-term control. I do a really short kind of uh, morning bodyweight exercise routine. I occasionally go for walks around the park, and I'm planning to join the jiu-jitsu studio after the trial period and go at least three times a week. Next up is what you eat. We covered what kinds of food type 1 diabetics should eat in episode 9. Please, please, please remember that all of my advice, all of Jesse's advice, is based on our own experiences. I recommend low-carb because it worked for me. 
Regardless of your stance on how many carbs a diabetic should eat, I think we can all agree that processed, packaged foods, not to mention added sugars, are literally the worst, and we should avoid them at all costs. A nice trick is to stick to the perimeter of the grocery store when you're shopping, since all of the aisles have the processed, packaged stuff. The key thing here is to experiment with different foods to understand how they impact your blood sugars and how they make you feel. For me, a donut will spike my blood sugar, and it'll make me feel gross after eating it despite how tasty it may have been in the moment. Even a bite of rice will make my blood sugar rise. Something that might help in this arena is understanding the glycemic index and glycemic load, and we'll do an episode on that in the future. Food is part of your long-term care because, duh, we all have to eat in order to live. What we eat is so important for our health that paying attention to it now makes it easier in the long run. I'll sometimes think back and wonder how different would my life be if I'd known about low-carb during high school and college. Next on the list is your mindset. Your mindset is probably one of the most important parts to your long-term care that's often overlooked. This is something I learned from one of my mentors, Brooke Castillo, whose podcast I have been absolutely devouring. Everything starts with a circumstance, which is a fact that everyone can agree upon. You have a thought about that circumstance. Your thoughts determine your feelings, which lead to your actions, which drive your results. What ties it all together is that your results are evidence of your thoughts. Let me say that again. Your thoughts determine your feelings, which lead to your actions, which drive your results. Here's an example. The circumstance is that my blood sugar is 154 and it's been over 140 for the last three hours. My thought about it is I can't ever have good numbers on the last day of my infusion fight. This makes me feel frustrated. My action then is to stack insulin, overcorrecting in an effort to get the numbers down, and my result is a mini roller coaster with my blood sugars. This serves as evidence of the original thought that my blood sugars are never good on the last day of a site. Another way to say this how you think about something determines how you experience it. So what that means for type 1 diabetics is if you're thinking about how awful it is to have this disease, that you wish you didn't have it, and why did it have to be you, then that's how you're going to experience your diabetes. You'll never be able to look at it and think about all of the good things that it brought you. If you switch your mindset and change what you're thinking, you'll be much more likely to experience amazing long-term control and take every speed bump in stride. I would sometimes scream into my pillow after a day of really bad blood sugars, hating that I have this disease, and utterly incapable of getting rid of it. It's common to get frustrated at our diabetes because it's so, so important to realize that we're in this for life, and the only way to make it through without going absolutely bonkers is to accept it head on and take whatever life throws at us. Your mindset matters, my friends, so keep that in mind. How you think about something determines how you experience it, and that's true for everything, not just your diabetes. We could do an entire episode on how this translates into our diabetic lives, but let's just leave it at this for now. Next is your mental health. And your mental health is absolutely connected to your mindset and your diabetes control. We've talked before in episode 9 that when Jess tried to go low-carb for the first time, her mental health suffered as a result, partly because she did it wrong. Diabetics are two to three times more likely to develop an eating disorder or other mental health disorder, which we touched on with Alex Vickers in episode 12. Diabetic burnout is real. Taking care of your mental health is just as important as taking care of your diabetes and your physical health. Managing that stress, dealing with all those emotions, it's hard work, I know. My saving grace is that I have never known life without type 1, so not taking care of myself during my really anxious low points was just not an option. I've just never considered letting go of those reins, and as a result, I've never had burnout. I know I'm lucky. But that's not to say it wasn't hard to take care of myself during that time. It was. It was frustrating to deal with those infusion sites that kinked over and over again, meaning I had to keep trying on new ones until one worked. It made me so angry, 
when my blood sugar stayed in the high 300s one day during college that I had to leave campus in the middle of a group project meeting because I just couldn't deal with it silently anymore. All the stress from cross boundaries, uncertain futures, and all the little everyday stressors that make it feel like I was constantly chasing my blood sugars. All of this to say that your mental health can affect how you control your diabetes, and your diabetes control can affect your mental health, the cycle. If you're not taking care of yourself, you're probably dealing with a lot of negative thoughts and emotions that you would gladly get rid of if you knew how. So please take steps to include mental health in your long-term care plans. Another factor in long-term control is the relationships you have with yourself, with your family, friends, coworkers, and caregivers. Let's start with the relationship you have with yourself. If you're constantly beating yourself up for less than perfect blood sugars, you're no better off than the diabetic who avoids checking because she's afraid of what the meter will say. How you treat yourself in this goes a long way for having long-term control. The simple answer to this is to give yourself grace, but I know firsthand how hard that is. It takes a lot of mental work and self-coaching to get to the point where you treat yourself the same way you'd treat your best friend. You'd never tell your best friend they should be ashamed of their blood sugars, would you? No. You'd tell them that it's just a number, it's neutral, and it doesn't mean anything except that you tested your blood sugar. This signal for what to do next, not a grade. The relationship you have with your family is just as important. If you're married, do you trust your partner to take care of you when you're sick? Or are you so controlling that you need to tell them exactly what to do or just do it yourself, despite how sick you are? I will frequently hand my pump to my husband to clear alerts or give insulin while I'm driving. This lets me keep my eyes on the road and the traffic. He's learned enough now that sometimes his suggestions for what to do with corrections or food is right on the money. He watches my blood sugar when I sleep since I go to bed a lot earlier than him. If it goes too high or too low for his comfort, he wakes me up to take care of it since I probably slept through all the alarms. Let your family know more about your care routine. Tell them when you want them to ask you diabetes-related questions or when to keep their opinions to themselves. Remember, they care about you. Your friends are another important group to be open with about your diabetes. My friends all know I have it. Most of them know what to do if I have a low. And the hint is give me something with sugar in it if I haven't already gotten it for myself. And make me sit down if I'm not sitting already. But but for my friends, like, my diabetes is just another day in the life kind of thing. It doesn't bother them. Plenty of my friends are diabetic too. Coworkers and managers are another group that should know about your diabetes. You don't have to tell them everything, but at least let them know you have type 1 that you may sometimes need to step aside to take care of things, or you'll bring your pump out during a meeting, or, you know, maybe you need to take an extra break here and there. I'm unusually open about my diabetes with my coworkers, so much so that it's a bit surprising to some people when I tell them how open I am. I just, I love talking about it. Actually, a lovely coworker who happens to share my name was also one of the first people I told about this podcast outside of my Panther Camp friends. So shout out here to my other Colleen. Lastly, your care team is an integral part of this long-term control puzzle. It's important to keep your doctors informed about what you're doing, what things you've changed, and keep asking questions to continue refining how you take care of yourself. It's your responsibility to handle your diabetes, since you're the one in the trenches every day, doing the dirty work, figuring out what works and what doesn't. Your care team can include your spouse or partner or your parent, your endocrinologist, your dietitians, your certified diabetes educators, and all the other doctors you go to, like ophthalmologists, dermatologists, dentists, and, you know, any other doctor whose field is affected by your diabetes. So pretty much all of them. Being open with all of them about how you're doing will go a long way in keeping you healthy. And don't feel bad if you feel like the relationship you have with your doctor is tense or stressful. You can always find a new one. How you click with a doctor can make all the difference. When I switched from pediatric to adult endocrinology, my adult endo changed all of my pump settings, and I immediately experienced better blood sugars. I always learn something new from her at every visit. I know all of this put together sounds like a daunting list of things to keep track of, but if you start with a good mindset and some goals about your diabetic future, Everything else will be a lot easier to manage. It's a marathon, not a race. Now let's get to some diabetes in the news. 
So we reported in episode seven that Tandem submitted their control IQ algorithm to the FDA. If you're just hearing about this now, the control IQ algorithm is the final piece of the closed loop artificial pancreas system using the Tandem T-Slim X2 pump and the Dexcom G6 sensor, which doesn't require calibration. Science Daily has released a report on the specifics of the study. The trial showed that this artificial pancreas system better controlled blood sugars than the current tech we have on the market. Surprise, surprise! Here's an excerpt from the Science Daily report. The researchers found that users of the artificial pancreas system significantly increased the amount of time with their blood glucose levels in the target range of 70 to 180 mgdl by an average of 2.6 hours per day since the beginning of the trial, while the time and range for the control group remained unchanged over six months. Artificial pancreas users also showed improvements in time spent with high and low blood glucose, hemoglobin A1c, and other measurements related to diabetes control compared to the control group. Tandem submitted the results of the study to the FDA, so hopefully it'll be approved soon. This is one software update I'm just itching to get my hands on. So now it is time for a question of the week. If you've had diabetes for a while, what have you found is important for your long-term control? How are you managing your mind and avoiding the complications we're all warned about? Leave a comment at inspiredforward.com slash episode 14, or send an email to colleen at inspiredforward.com. We love to hear from you. So that is it for this episode of This is Type 1. Remember, you can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 14. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, please, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade, and our audio wizard is my husband, Tim. I'm on all social media as at inspiredforward, and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. Jesse's on Instagram as at jj underscore crystal kat. Please feel free to send both of us questions or comments you have about type one or about the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. That really helps other people find us. And be sure to listen in next week when we talk about managing holidays with type one diabetes since Thanksgiving is right around the corner. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.